Hey, so glad you're with us. Also, aren't you guys glad our online campus is with us as well from around the globe? We are so glad that you're all joining us. Um, feel free to jump in the chat and tell us where you're joining us as well. So we're in week five, and if you're just visiting or if you are, uh, if you kind of have had a long week, you don't remember, I want to recap where we've been because this has been really powerful. Um, we have been talking about how can we be the type of people who end up there, the there that we have for our own, our own hopes and dreams and the there that God has for us. And the way we do that is by making good decisions. We've been saying for five weeks that we are all writing the story of our own life, and the way we, we pen that story is one decision at a time. And there's a unique but not often a thought of connection between the, the good questions and good decisions. The decisions we make are often no better than the questions we ask or don't know to ask ahead of time. And so the, the whole premise of this book and the premise of this series has been, what if we could have five questions in our tool book, toolbox, five kind of questions in our arsenal that anytime we make a decision of any significance, uh, moderate, huge, about finances, uh, about academics, about career, uh, relationships, romance, all the, what if we had five questions that could bring a bunch of clarity that would help us to make better decisions and allow us to experience fewer regrets? And kind of the, the unveil for week five is I've kind of been saying this every week, but these questions aren't actually designed to be asked one at a time or randomly. Um, it's, they're asked to be in sequence. There's an order to this. And the way that you get to those decisions is it's kind of like the doors we've had is you walk through the doors or the questions one at a time and they kind of go in order because if you don't start with the first one, you're never gonna make it to the last one where you're gonna get the clarity, the wisdom and the decision you're looking for. And so in week one, we asked the question, am I being honest with myself? This is the first and greatest question because a lot of people deceive themselves. But if we can be honest with ourselves, it opens the door to a second question. Now that I'm being honest with myself, I get to ask, what story do I wanna tell? If I am really gonna, if this decision is gonna be a story someday, what do I want that story to look like? What, how do I want that story to go and what decision is gonna get me there? Then that leads us to a third question. When everything checks out, we get to this question. I, I, I'm being honest with myself. I know the story I want to tell, but there's something in me that doesn't sit right. Everything looks good on paper. People are kind of nodding their heads, but I have this check in my, in my gut or my spirit. The question is, is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there something that I owe it to myself to at least pay attention to and go, before I just move forward, let's make sure everything settles and, and feels right. And then that leads us to the fourth question. We walk through this doorway and we get to what we said last week might be the best question ever. I will tell you, I'm gonna call it the best question ever because it's a very different question than most of us are kind of hardwired to ask, which is the ones we're hardwired to ask is how far can I go without getting into big trouble or how close to the line can I get? But this question is very different. It's what is the wise thing for me to do? And we said, when you put it on three contexts of our past, our present and our future, this brings crazy clarity. And so we said it this way, in light of my past experiences, in light of my current circumstances, and in light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? And that will eliminate a lot of options, and it's a great question. And then as we walk through that, I'm, I'm okay with continuing to call that the best question ever, because I came up with a better name for this question. And that's what leads us to this question, the fifth question. This might be the best question ever, but this will be the most powerful question ever. This question has more ability and more power to change your life, the life around you, the world around you than any of the other questions. But this question's a little different than the other four. It's a little bit of a different focus. And so I, I wanna talk about this question. And this question is actually called the relationship question. Somebody say relationship. relationship. The relationship question. This question, the relationship question might actually be the most clarifying question 
of all. It might, be, it might bring more clarity than any other question. Uh, and, and I want to preface this because when I say relationship, somebody's like, well, I've been married a long time or I'm not dating anybody. This relationship question goes far beyond that special someone. It works in that context, but it's bigger than that. This question, when asked, answered honestly, and acted upon or applied, has the ability to enhance every relationship you'll ever have, whether it be an acquaintance or a deep relationship. This question has the ability to rekindle romance. This question has the ability to rebuild bridges uh, and restore broken and, and, and relationships and mend wounds. This question can do more for relationships than any other question, but it does come with a disclaimer. This question's a little different than the other four because the other four questions all, all kind of have what I would call an ROI. If you don't know what that term is, it just means a return on investment. When I invest something, I get something back. All four of those first questions have an ROI. This fifth question does not have an ROI. It might, but it might not. Because if you kind of go, if you think about the questions we just reviewed, um, you're gonna always come, you're always gonna come out ahead by being honest with yourself. There's a return on that. Um, you're always gonna have something to show for a story that you're proud to tell someday. So there, you come out ahead on that. Uh, there's always gonna be measurable return for paying attention to the tension inside of your, your stomach. So there's a return on that. Uh, and, and doing the wise thing almost always leads to better. We talked about that last week. There's a return on that. But this question, the relationship question, there's no guaranteed return. It might, but it might not. It's because this question is different than the other four. This question isn't actually about making your life better. This question is about making everybody else's life better or somebody else's life better. This question isn't focused on me and my life. This question is focused on someone else's life from my perspective. It may make your life better, but it may not. But here's the cool part about the fifth question and is why I'm kind of addicted to it. Because this question actually does give you the opportunity to make the world better. Definitely gives you the opportunity and the, and the, and the chance to make your world better. And in order to, to introduce this question before I reveal it, I wanna give you the setting of this question because the setting and where this comes from is, is really, really imperative. The backdrop of this question is actually the Last Supper. It is about 18 hours before Jesus died on the cross. He has, he's just about to be arrested. He's about to be tried. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be beaten. But before he does that, if you don't know the story, Jesus had three years to change the world and he chose 12 disciples. 11 of them, history believes, were teenagers and one was about 21 or 22. Imagine trying to change the world with that group of knuckleheads, right? But Jesus did it. And so these were his closest people. They were disciples. He, these were the ones he said, you're gonna be the apostles. You're gonna start this movement called the church. And so, uh, and, and Jesus had been healing and preaching and teaching and including and loving and doing things like no one had ever seen. And so everybody could kind of sense something was coming. They knew it was heading somewhere. The, the history knew it. The, the prophecies were pointing to it. Um, even the week before he had ridden into Jerusalem and people lined the road and threw their coats and, and palm trees down and, 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 and they were expecting him to take over Jerusalem and reestablish the nation of Israel. At this point, Jesus had everybody's attention, but they didn't know his intention. They wanted a political overthrow. They wanted a stronger economy. They wanted to be on top of the royalty. They wanted to be on top of the economic power, but Jesus had something very different. Jesus had something far better in mind. And even his 12 disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And so he sits them down for one final meal. He knew what was coming tomorrow. They didn't. He sits them down for one final meal and announces that he's leaving. He says, I'm about to leave. And so this is literally kind of his last 
marching orders, his last conversation, unbeknownst to them. And before I show you these words, here's my uncomfortability with this. If you've been in the church world for very long, these words are actually so familiar. They're so, oh, I've kind of heard that before, that I'm afraid that it's easy for us to go, oh, I've already heard that, so I know it. Or they don't maybe impact, or they maybe don't inform or guard our words or our action or our intent like maybe they should. And maybe we say, oh, I've heard it, so I know it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we do it. But here's what you need to know. When Jesus sat his friends down around the table and he spoke these words that I'm about to show you that lead to this question, these words and this movement would turn the world upside down forever. The world as we know it has literally never been the same. Whether you believe Jesus was the Messiah or not, he started something that has never, ever stopped. And he spoke these words the evening before he died on the cross. And it was that event, the cross, where he gave up his life, shed his blood, where he, the perfect lamb, paid for every mistake that we would ever make. And all of our mistakes gives us so much confidence in our right standing with God because of what he did. We don't have to measure ourselves any longer by our goodness or our our efforts, but we get to accept Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So if I ever wonder where I stand with God, I don't look at my worst day. I look at Jesus on the cross and I know it's love. That event changed history. And here's what you need to know. Jesus dying on the cross, a few hours after he said this, was literally the the illustration and the application of these words that he said that night that wouldn't have totally made sense in the moment until the next day as a disciple, you're like, oh my gosh, I get it. And here's what you need to know about these words. They're basically the epicenter of the Christian faith. These words are what God's kingdom is like. They are the heart of God. And and the challenge with this is it's, it's so simple. It's so profound. We have to guard ourselves from trying to overcomplicate it because sometimes we want more. We want deeper. But I think we want deeper because we've never actually witnessed somebody being drugged into the city and being, bitten, uh, being beaten 39 times by someone whose job is actually to bring you as close to death as possible, but actually keep you alive because death would be more merciful. So they stopped on the brink of death where you were to be, we, wouldn't, we don't know what it's like to be mocked and, and, and betrayed by your own people, to know the days before that you pre-decided to go hang on a cross, at that time in history, the worst form of torture where you would literally suffocate from your body fluids. And Jesus chose this ahead of We want more profound and we want complicated because we've never witnessed a crucifixion and thank God we hadn't. And this is exactly what proceeded Jesus's words. We want there to be more. But there's nothing more profound and nothing more deep than somebody who chose days ahead of time to give up his life, not just for his friends, not just for his mom, but for his enemies, for people who didn't know him, for people who never would care, for people who would deny him, and for people who would be his enemies their entire life. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and did that next day, there is nothing deeper. There is no more complication. There is nothing more profound. And there's nothing probably more contrary to human nature than what Jesus did that day. And there's also nothing that has more potential to change everything in your life and in the world around you if we take Jesus at not just his example, but his words. This man, Jesus, and these words 
represented and and introduced a paradigm shift that flipped the world on its head. At the time, Jesus seemed like a harmless threat to the Roman Empire and a harmless threat to the temple system. When in fact, years later, it was this man and his movement that both took down the Roman Empire and the temple system all by itself. And Jesus's words in this final meal, they serve as the context. They serve as the application. They serve as the the fuel, the gasoline for what he's uh, about to say. They serve as the, the, the application of our fifth and final question. And so I wanna take just a second and I wanna invite some of you out and I wish that we could maybe lean back a little bit and try to hear this for the first time again, if you've heard it before. Un- unhear and unknow what you think you know. And with that setting and with that context, think about the words that Jesus said in his final meal and what they meant there and then. But more importantly, what do they mean for us here and now as we introduce the fifth question? Allow these words to sink deep because I think if you do, they will compel you to be more kind. They will compel you to forgive. They will compel you to tame your tongue. They will compel you to adjust your pace. They will compel you to open your wallet. They will compel you to reevaluate your values, and they will compel you to live very differently in this chaotic, dysfunctional world that's trying to drag us down to its level of immaturity. And so, what if we could hear these for the first time? Jesus sits his guys down. He knows what's coming. They have no idea. And he says this, and these words changed history forever. In John chapter 13, he says, guys, I'm leaving tomorrow. Before I do a new command, I give you. Now, we're gonna go slow through this. A new command. If you know anything about that time in history and that culture, the last thing they needed was another command. They already had the Big Ten from Exodus. And then over the the next 1,500 years or so, they've added about 600 and some more, 613 mishvats, what it meant to be a good God-loving Jew. So they have 600 laws, 600 rules. And Jesus is like, I have a new command. And not only that, but Jesus himself, just a few weeks, months before, had said, hey, all those rules, I can reduce it to two. And it's the, the four words that inform our mission here at our church. Love God, love people. He said it this way. If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, all the rules and all the Ten Commandments and all the stuff that you're worried about with the old temple system, you'll cover all of it. Just do those two things. So he's already reduced it to two, and now he's going to say, a new command I give you. They, they didn't need a new command. And what you have to understand is Jesus wasn't just adding a command when he says a new command. And this is, this is where some of us get messed up a little bit. Well, what about the Ten Commandments? He's not adding a new command. It's far more radical than that. He's actually replacing all of them. He's even replacing love God, love people with this new command. And he says this, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, again, if you're the disciples, you're like, does he know he's told us this before? Like they'd heard this. That wasn't new. They had heard it, but when he said the word love, here's what I want you to take away from it. And here's what he wanted his disciples to take away. When he said love one another, Jesus wasn't instructing us to feel something. He was instructing us to go do something. He was instructing us to live out loud with our actions, not be driven by our emotions. So he said, I'm gonna give you a new command. This is gonna replace all the other ones. Love one another. And then what he said next, well, what he said next was basically unthinkable. What he said next changed the world forever. What he said next trumped the golden rule. What he said next even trumped love God, love people. And what he said next, if you will let this sink in, 
may just change your life forever when you walk out this door, whether you've been in church your whole life or you're here for the very first time or you're watching from somewhere else on the planet. He said this, love one another as I have loved you. As I, Jesus, everything you've seen me say, everything you've seen me do, all the words, all the healings, all the inclusion, everything you've seen, as I have done that, so you must do it to one another. What he's saying is, you just go and do likewise to the other. So now, the new ethic, the new standard is no longer, I'm gonna do to you as good as I do to myself. It's no longer, I'm gonna do to you as good as I hope you do to me. It's now the new commandment, the new ethic, the new world-changing philosophy is, I'm gonna do to you what Jesus did to me. And my Bible tells me, and history tells me, when I was the furthest from him and on my worst behavior, he still gave his everything on my behalf. That's the new standard of love. So this changed everything. And in that moment, Jesus is now establishing himself as the new standard and the new ethic of love, the new standard by which we should measure and evaluate our behavior and our motives. So if you grew up maybe in a church environment that says, well, all you gotta do is believe, brother, I think the words of Jesus right here say, no, you gotta do a little bit more than just believe. He's saying if you have to love one another to the length that I have loved you. The whole do unto others as you hope they do to you was so last century, so old covenant. He's like, that's, that's yesterday. I have something far better. And what he didn't say, but he could have, he's like, and by the way, if you think what I've done is pretty good up to this point, because y'all were not good enough, couldn't make it, and I pulled you in, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till tomorrow. He didn't say that, but he could have, because he knew what was coming. I already told you, beaten, whipped 39 times by a whip with glass and bone to torture him and then hung on a cross and, and embarrassed and humiliated, not just for his best friends, but his worst enemies. It was a demonstration that would not only take their breath away, but it's a demonstration that will take your sin away forever. It was the application, because these weren't just words at a dinner. They were the preview to what was about to happen. And then he concludes with this one thing that I think if we really get it, it will really inform and maybe radically change some of our lives. So he's already said, love as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then in verse 35, he says this, and by this, somebody say this, this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another like that. And that word this isn't some general, it's a very specific word. And that word this is pointing to the point of phrase where he says, by this, by loving people the way I have loved you, when you didn't deserve my forgiveness, when you didn't deserve my grace, when you made the same mistake again and again and again, I still forgave you and I reminded of that we are good, not because you are good, we are good because I am love. And I will give that love to you. He says, by this, this is how people will know that you are my follower, you're my disciple, that you are a Christian. And this new movement would be called the church. And we are supposed to be known by this one word, this one ethic right here, the word love. And it's supposed to, and it's supposed to, and it will, and it has, and it will continue to stand above all their religions, all other ideologies, all other philosophies. This idea stood in stark contrast to the way of living in the first century. And I would say this idea stands in stark contrast to the way that the world around us lives to this day. This new contrast, this new ethic, this new standard is the litmus test now. It's the litmus test for a follower of Jesus. It's a litmus test for real love, because now we don't no longer define love by what we think love is. Jesus is the example and the definition and the measure of love. And so, contextually, what does this mean for us? How does we apply this to our life? After this, now Jesus' followers would demonstrate our love for God 
by putting the person next to us in front of us. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say that before. Jesus followers, how do I know I'm doing, how, how are me and God doing? Well, how are me and you doing? Because as a Jesus follower, my love for God should be demonstrated in the person around me, in front of me, behind me, and, and I said yes to putting that person next to me, in front of me. We no longer authenticate our relationship with God by looking up and worshiping only, but we actually look around and go, who can I love? Who is my neighbor? And by the way, inquiring minds would ask, maybe the skeptic would ask, well, why should I love this way? If you're a disciple, you're like, well, why do we have to do this? Well, what would Jesus' answer be? Because I loved you this way. Because Jesus loved his disciples that way, and Jesus loved me that way. See, Jesus went first. One of my favorite things about following Jesus in the Christian faith is these two ideas, that Jesus is never going to ask us to do something he didn't himself do, number one, and two, that he won't give us his spirit to empower us to do, even if it's outside of our scope of capabilities. That's awesome. So Jesus is never going to ask me to do something he didn't do, and if, if I'm like, well, I can't do it, he's like, oh, I know, but you have this thing called my Holy Spirit, and he'll help you. That's awesome. Like, it's, it's the ultimate cheat code. So this new command it's actually far less complicated, this new question, but it's far more demanding. And here's why. This whole love like Jesus kind of gets rid of the loopholes and workarounds, doesn't it? Yeah. Though, well, does the Bible really say? It doesn't really matter anymore, does it? Because no. we know how Jesus loved. And so this backdrop, that conversation, now that you know, that's what leads us to our fifth and final question. And this will help you make better decisions. It will lead you to fewer regrets. It may not bring you to an ROI, but it will make the world around you better and it will make you more like Jesus. And the fifth, fifth question is, not for me, but it's for the people in my life. What does love require of me? Not what should you do for me, but what does love require of me? Well, what kind of love? We just read it. This is how the world will know that you're my disciple. If you love as I have loved you, as I have included you, as I have forgiven you, as I have instructed you, if I have been patient with you, as I have put you first, as I literally have laid my life down for you, what does love require of me? And here's why I love this question and hate this question. It brings a ton of clarity real quick. Most of the time we know the answer to this question before we can even finish saying it or even thinking it. It's, again, kind of like last week. It's very different. Well, is it really illegal to, or does the Bible really say? This kind of eliminates some of that gray area, doesn't it? This question should serve as a guide and a compass to how we navigate the complexities of relationship. This question should inform how we date, how we boss, how we parent, how we serve, how we love, how we coach, how we work, how we play. It should set parameters about what we say and do and what we don't say and do, and it should and inform us about how we go about relationships with, as neighbors and coworkers and spouses and parents and kids. This question, what I love about it, is it kind of fills the gap when God, see, God seems silent. If there's a decision to be made, well, I, what does God really think? Well, what does love require of me? Brings a whole lot of clarity. It kind of fills the gap when it's like, well, the Bible doesn't really say, well, what does love require of me? Brings, again, a whole lot of clarity. It's very simple yet a whole lot more demanding. Because let's just, let's call it what it is. How do we typically approach most relationships? In our world, what's the least I can give and the most I can get? It's, how, it's our human nature. That's why what Jesus did is so contrary to human nature. What's the littlest amount I can give, but you give me the most, right? Which you would never advise your kids to get into a relationship like that. 
but it's how we're wired. But Jesus says, no, 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 I have a far better way. It's more demanding, but there's actually more peace. There's actually more purpose. There's more blessing. And you will like the person that you've become if you follow this. And the good news is most of us are actually smart enough and mostly emotionally dialed in enough to know the answer to that question. And just in case this question isn't specific enough, You've heard me say this before. The, old, the entire New Testament is literally the application of that, what I just read you. Everything after the book of John is Paul and James and John and Peter, all those guys are literally writing contextual application to that one question. I mean, they, they dial it down. What does it look like like this? It's literally the application of how do we love like Jesus did. The, the, the New Testament gives tons of examples. In one place, uh, we, we call it the fruit of the Spirit, but it's a great picture where Paul really dials in and gets specific. Let me help you answer what love looks like. Peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He goes, that's what love looks like. Well, how do we know what love is? But there's one really specific way where Paul really is like, man, let me just make this super clear. And it was in a letter he wrote to a group of, a church, a group of Christians in Corinth. It's in his first letter called 1 Corinthians. It's probably the most detailed description uh, and, uh, and this is the detailed description for us to measure ourselves and evaluate ourselves by. And it's easily the most comprehensive list in the New Testament. And so Paul was writing to his church and he was answering the question, what does love require of us? He said it this way. He got very specific. He said, here's what love requires. It's patient. It's, it's kind. It's not envious. It's not jealous. It doesn't puff itself up with pride. It's not proud. It's not rude and obnoxious. It doesn't demand its own way. Real love rejoices in the truth, which starts with our first question, being honest. And then he goes on in verse five of chapter 13. He says, love doesn't dishonor others. Love doesn't dishonor others. What Paul is saying here is love never treats another person, follow this, never treats another person dishonorably, disgracefully, or indecently. Why? Because Jesus never treated another person, whether it was a woman at the well, whether it was an adulterer, whether it was a Roman soldier who was the enemy, whether it was a disciple who made so many mistakes, whether it was his own mother, he never treated one person dishonorably, disgracefully, or indecently, including you, including his friends, including his enemies. And remember, Jesus is the new standard. Jesus is the new ethic. Jesus is the new measuring tool. And so he goes on to say, love, want more application? What does love require of me? It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't have a secret journal called the record of wrongs. It's really quick to forgive and try to forget. What else, Paul? Do you got anything else for us? Yeah, let me tell you more. What does love require? It always protects. Love keeps harmful things out of the relationship, not inviting them in. It doesn't seek its own, or as one version says, love does not demand its own way. Love works to protect the relationship. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone. It doesn't mean you see eye to eye on everything or let people do whatever they want. But Paul's saying, this is what love requires of us. By the way, if you're wondering where all this comes from, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, basically verses one through eight. And he starts it by saying, we can claim to know God and sing hymns and do all this stuff, but if we don't have love, we basically have and are nothing. He's talking to a group of really religious people who lived right, but didn't love. 
Ugh, that's me sometimes. I spent, I spent far, some of you, you grew, up in, you grew up in religions. You're like, you know my story. I spent far more time trying to get the rules right, but it wasn't in love. And Paul's like, it's a resounding gog. It's a clanging symbol. It's worthless. It doesn't matter. If we have love, you know what he says? We have and we are nothing. Well, what gave Paul the guts to say that? Paul was just writing the application of this question, which has come out of the conversation Jesus had at his last meal. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, the world will say, that must be a Jesus follower because he and she, they put the person next to them in front of them. And sometimes the person next to them doesn't like them, doesn't agree with them, doesn't look like them, doesn't vote like them, doesn't sound like them on Facebook, is a different skin color, is a different gender, is a different generation. It doesn't matter because the person next to them is in front of them. They have to be a Jesus follower because no one in human history has ever done that except for those crazy Jesus followers. Sign me up. I fail every day. But I, I'm in. Like, I've, I've, I've dabbled. I've looked. Nothing compares to this. There's no, other, there's no other person, there's no other idea that compares to this. And by the way, all those things, patient, kind, doesn't demand its own way. If we're honest with ourselves, aren't those the things we hope for and expect from other people to us? Yep. Aren't those the things we want for our kids when they get into a relationship? Well, then wouldn't it only be right for us to expect it of ourselves then? right? I can't expect it from you if I'm not willing to deliver. Well, who goes first? Jesus says, we always go first. We go first. We go first. We lay our life down. Why? Because he did it for us first. So before you, how do I apply this to my life? Well, next time, tomorrow, today in the parking lot, who knows? My God, I've seen some of you in the parking lot. It doesn't take long when we leave church. You watch online, so you, you'd get to dodge that bullet, most of you. Um, before you respond, before you over-respond, before you react, before you remind somebody of their past, before you remind that person what they did to you and what they deserve, before you get out of your car, go inside and straighten everybody in the house out, before you walk into that cubicle of the office to tell them or her or him that, what if we could just have a, a pause for a moment and just ask one question? Before I, whatever, make any decision of any magnitude, forget the big ones. What does love require of me? I guarantee you, you almost always know. And I promise you, most of the time, it won't be like what you were feeling. But you'll, be, you'll like how the relationship goes. You'll like the effects of the relationship. You'll like what it does to the inside of you. And you might just change that person. It may actually come back to you. But if not, it will make the world around you a better place. Imagine, I said this in the last service. Imagine if for 24 hours, 8 billion people, that's about the amount of people on earth, in case you don't know that, just, got, just did this for 24 hours. One day, all of us, everybody at the same time. What does love require? I think Facebook would look different. The roads would look different. The restaurants would look different. We know the, sh the shopping cart situation would be different down here in Florida. <laughs> Everybody, what does love require of me? What does love require me? And this question can change everything. When, you, when you're reminded of your past, I know what I'm past is. I know what I'm predisposed to. I know how I normally react. I know what people expect me to do. I know what they deserve. Pause. What does love require? What does love require? Well, let me give a couple of ideas. For some of us, love may require Sometime this week, walking into another room and, and saying, I'm sorry. For some of you, love may require after this service, grabbing a phone 
and send in a text message or a call and an apology and trying to rebuild or mend a, a relationship that maybe you ruined with your unassailable logic. You know what I have found that love almost never requires? Being right. Being right is rarely a part of what love requires. I love me some being right. I grew up, we practiced it a lot growing up. But it almost never is the answer to that question. Some of you, it may cause you to revisit your vows that you made all those years ago. What did I say? What did I promise? What does love require? How am I doing with that? For some of you, it may cause you to think about the vows you plan on making and are you walking in that out and living that and treating them that way and are they going first in every area or is it more about getting my own taking and how little do I have to give and how much can you give me? And here's the thing. This, there's a lot there's out, outside us. There's a lot I don't understand. There's a lot that we're not in control of. But here's the beautiful part about this story, this question. My lack of understanding should never impede my ability to put others first. I don't have to understand. I just don't. And here's what's cool. If Jesus was correct, apparently this is enough. If Jesus was correct, and I think he was, this is what it means to be a follower of his. If Jesus was correct, he's going to help me do this because I can't do it on my own. If this, is what's, if this is correct, then this is the answer. When we pray, God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do you know what the answer to that prayer is? Okay, dude, be kind. What does love require of you? It's literally it. You get to be the answer to your own prayer. It's not some ethereal spiritual battle. Yes, that's real, but they only can establish, those two spiritual realms can only establish their kingdom through one vehicle. You know what they're called? Human beings. So what does love require of us? We could change, we could change our city with this. We could change our marriages with this. We could change the world with this. We could find the joy and the peace, the purpose. We could find the identity and the relationship that we've always been looking for regardless of our career or our future or our past or anything like that. So what does love require of you? This is week five. We've asked five great questions. Let me just encourage you and pray as we close. Your past doesn't have to be the whole book. It can just be a few chapters. It's a part of your story. It doesn't have to be the entire story. Your past should remind you, but it doesn't have to define you. Come on, somebody. We don't have to continue to make the same mistakes. We don't have to continue to be the same person. We have five great questions, ending with maybe the best question ever, followed by the most powerful question ever. And I can promise you, this will change your life. And I would just say as your pastor, I love you enough to say you at least owe it to yourself to ask yourself the questions and answer honestly. You may not act on it, but you might just find this coming in handy at some point on a large or even a small-sized decision or interaction. Here's what I love about this one right here. This changed the world once. I'm convinced it'll do it again. Even in a Christian America that's super hyper self-focused, what if we became experts at putting the people next to us, in front of us? And what if we were driven by the question, what does love require? Two applications of this is we're gonna pray and dismiss. First of all, I'll just tell you honestly, you can't do this love, you can't have this love, and you can't give this love outside of a relationship with the one who is love. And so that starts by you inviting God into your life, not having a bumper sticker that says I'm a Christian or a fish somewhere. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all the further it goes, it's not doing anybody any good. This, this God has to be a part of it. So what that looks like is the songs we were just singing. I, I lay down my life. I surrender to you. You are the one that's dictating my life. And so the Bible says that Jesus offers that salvation and, and that, that new life freely because of what he did on the cross. And so if you believe that's for you and you receive it, 
not only do you become new, the Bible says, but the same spirit that, that empowered Jesus, it says, comes inside of you and empowers you to do this. That's called salvation. It's incredible. That, I don't know what kind of church you went to, but let me tell you what the Bible says. You only got to do that once. I don't know what kind of church camps you went to, but you don't got to do it every summer. You just got to do it once. But then there's another part of this that I, that I do regularly throughout the day. And it's, God, I need you to refill me. I'm a leaky faucet when it comes to God's love. And so I need God fill me, God fill me, God fill me. So I'm gonna say a prayer and I'm gonna invite you to say it with me and it's gonna cover those two things. And I'm gonna invite all of us to say it together. God, would you come in? I surrender my life. I want you to, to help me to know this love, transform me. And will you fill me with this love again and again? And will you cause me at the moments it's the most important to pause with this question? That's what the prayer is gonna be. And so if you're physically able and you're comfortable, I wanna invite you to stand where you're at. And I'm just gonna say a very short, simple prayer and invite you to repeat this after me. And then we're gonna go ask, answer honestly and act. And we're gonna see God move in our life and in the world around us. Bow your heads if you would. Repeat this after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate example of love. I know my standing with you is good. Not because of me, but because of what Jesus did. I receive his love. I receive his sacrifice into my life. I surrender my life to you. Make me new. Give me your spirit. Empower me to be who you made me to be and live the way you've called me to live. And God, moving forward, would you continue to fill me? Fill me with your love. Fill me with your spirit. In the moments when I need it most, will you cause me to stop and pause and remind me of this question. What does love require of me? Help me not just to hear these words this day, but let them sink deep into my heart and may I live them in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.